You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Aman Ahmed. He is a seasoned entrepreneur with a diverse background in e-business, venture-backed startups, and brand building, with a keen eye for identifying market niches and driving business growth. Aman brings a wealth of knowledge to our discussion today, where we really dive in deep to a company that he exited recently that he owned 100% of. No venture back fun, and even though he had done that in previous companies, we found out why and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Before starting, I want to thank Ahmed Rafai, who was the one that made this introduction that facilitated this conversation for months now. So Ahmad, he's out there. He's a business broker here in Silicon Valley. So if you're selling a business, he's a great guy to connect with. I'll have his contact information in the show notes. And now Ahmed, Ahmad, tell me a little bit about yourself, your career. And before we dive into the questions, tell us a little about yourself up until this point. Yeah, firstly, thank you for having me. And yeah, I guess to give a quick overview, being an entrepreneur for about 10 years or so, and went to university, worked a little bit in recruitment, and then had a few side hustles in music. First, it was music for humans, and that was doing quite well. Had a VC-backed company that flopped, and then this dog music thing was a side hustle, and then scaled it massively, self-funded, bootstrapped, and then we got acquired last year, and that was it. A quick overview. Yeah, I love how succinct all that was. And that was thirty. That was ten years over thirty seconds. Exactly. <laughs> so let's go back to the very beginning, before before the company that got acquired, the side hustle, all those. I looked on your LinkedIn, you are an e-business specialist. First off, what does that mean? What does that do? And what skills did you learn from that to be the foundation for everything else you did? Good question. Like it was one of those things that I don't even know what it is. I think it was a, basically, it was a recruitment company that I was working for. And as recruiting for Oracle enterprise software developers, I believe it was. And in terms of that, to me, it's like recruitment is, it's a grind. It's so damn hard. And I remember graduating and I had a decent degree, a placement year behind me. I did a year at Hewlett Packard. So I thought, okay, this is enough foundation for me to get a job. And I just struggled to get a job. All my friends were getting jobs. And for some reason, I wasn't. Even though I had everything on paper and then I ended up going into recruitment, you know, the promise of making money on fees and all that stuff. So went into that and it was IT recruitment and it is insanely hard, but I think whoever does it, respect, because it teaches you the absolute, now connect the dots looking back, it teaches you the foundations of building a business, like being relentless, building a business. Just having those sales skills, those communication skills, everything. It, it was the hardest job I ever had, but the most valuable one. Wait, so even, would you consider that even harder than when you 
were a founder of a company or is that hardest of ever being an employee? The hardest of ever, ever being an employee? And I'd say there are elements of it that are harder than being a founder. And I think a lot of that is that door-to-door, not physically door-to-door, but just selling, picking up the phone and selling, picking up the phone and selling. It's probably one of the hardest skills, but if you master it, or even if you don't master it, if you become at least okay at it, it sets up an incredible foundation for you to go and build a business. Were you using any of those skills that you picked up then that hustle, those sales skills for your venture back company? A hundred percent, yeah. Like when I was, yeah, VC backed, it was obviously pitching. I guess in the intro, how I pitched in 30 seconds because I got so used to just summarizing everything in such a quick and efficient way. When you're pitching, I'm sure a lot of founders that are trying to raise money, I know that you have to be like super efficient at communicating. And obviously I'm not perfect, but always learning. And I think, yeah, when you're recruiting employees, pitching to investors, partners, press, whatever it is, everything is you just need to know how to somehow pick up the phone, build a relationship. So I think that created an incredible foundation for sure. So one of your companies was venture-backed. One wasn't venture-backed. What's the benefit of either being venture-backed? What's the pros and cons of either of those routes? Do you know what? It's an interesting one, actually. I think it's, I don't think it's a pro and con. I think it's what type of founder you truly are and what type of founder you feel comfortable being. Some people prefer being venture-backed, having co-founders and VC. And I think that gives you the access to building a company that you could potentially make 100 million, 200, a billion, a few billion, whatever. And some people are CEOs in the sense that they can work that way. But for me, I realized I'm not that type of person. I value lifestyle freedom always. And I think it goes back to the first book that was ever introduced to me, which was a Tim Ferriss four hour work week made so much sense to me. It was scary how well I connected with that book. Therefore, oh, wait, this is a bit too easy. Emotionally, it just felt a bit too easy. But I realized after having a venture back company, I had to take it back to the foundation of that book. Why did I want to build a business? Obviously to have an impact and to have lifestyle freedom. And do I, I guess it's one of those things like once you have $10 million versus $100 million or whatever it is, your happiness factor tends to tail off anyway. So I thought, okay, I prefer not to be VC backed. And to be a bit more specific for me personally, I'd say the pros is obviously you have people around you, you have experts around you, you have co-founders. It's just less of a lonely ride. The only thing is you can't make decisions that quickly, which I say is a con. On a flip side, when you're solo bootstrapped, you can make decisions super quick and just go, but a negative, it can be insane. It can be super lonely. But anything goes wrong, it's all down on you. And you need to figure out how to deal with that. So it's one of those things. You decide your own pros and cons. But those are the two big ones, I'd say. So let's go back. That What was the company that you did that was venture-backed? What was the company that you then created later that wasn't, that was your side hustle? And how did you go from the venture-backed to saying, hey, I'm only working 14, 16 hour days. I have plenty of time for this side hustle. So the first company that was venture back, it was a music discovery app. 
I guess it, it allowed you to, what we did is we collected a lot of independent unsigned artists and just created this whole database and it just made it easier for you to discover and build a playlist super quick of new up and coming artists. And it was doing quite well. We had a lot of users around the world, a lot of artists submitted content and it was getting quite big in America. I think, yeah, so then we raised some angel money, VC money, we had co-founders, advisors, all that stuff. And it was there, it was all being built in Manchester. And I remember going out to LA and being introduced to a bunch of funds, investors, all that stuff. And they wanted us, they were like, come to LA because this is the place, this is the place to be, especially with what we're doing. And we're going to get a lot of introductions and help us grow at the time. But it was one of those things where I guess I made that decision to stay in England because I thought it'd be maybe let's build a media company out of Manchester. Let's be the first to do something. But maybe that was a, a step too far because it's very hard to find people in to believe in your vision to back the next round or the next round. So it was, yeah, I'd say definitely a difficult and interesting learning lesson when you have investors and founders and advisors and all that stuff. It was a roller coaster if you're. So during that, when did you have time to do the side hustle that ultimately became the huge success? Was it just nights and weekends or, were, you know what, I'm just going to give this to another founder to work on and do this on the side? How did that shift happen? And were the investors okay with it? Yes, yeah, so the investors were okay with it. So which was really interesting is like this side hustle was actually running on before that VC-backed company anyway. So it was music for humans and it was only making a few hundred dollars a month anyway at the time. So the investors like, oh, whatever, okay. And it just slowly started growing. I think it was just, it was easier to apply that Tim Ferriss model of automation and outsourcing and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, the music producers, the website, the SEO, the social media, just hire a bunch of people, interview them, hire them. Okay, do this. These are the KPIs. So it just became like, very efficient. So it is weird in the side hustle, I was using that Tim Ferriss for our work week approach. And then obviously the VC backed company, you can't, you have to be more of a corporate structure. You've got board meetings and all that stuff. So you're quite limited in what you can do. So it just made me more efficient, but the side hustle was like, okay, making, making a bit of money is supplementing my income and just see what happens. There was like no pressure as well. I just love this story, the no pressure, side hustle, four-hour work week, huge success. Go all in, stress, people over your shoulder yelling. Yeah, no, that's not happening. Yeah, exactly. So wait, the, the, the one with the VC back, when did you know it was time to shut the doors? When were you thinking of pivoting it all into something else? What came to the, the finale there? So this was really interesting, actually. I think what made me realize was because we were slowly running out of money and like our VCs at the time were not back in the next round. They wanted me to find another lead, which kind of makes no sense because your VC leads the round. And so it was like, okay, how do we be a bit more, how do we stretch that runway? And it, obviously stretching the runway so far, you end up pissing off people in your team because you start cutting back. And then and some of them are co-founders. And I think it was a moment, I remember I went into the office once and the energy was a bit weird. And I remember the whole team, I was like, oh, hey, how's it going? I was, meh, meh, whatever. 
And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then one of the co-founders said, oh, I'm on, we need to have a meeting. I will go into the meeting room. So it was just me and the co-founder that went to the meeting room, but then everyone else came in after that, thought this is a bit weird. And they were like, okay, look, we have a problem. You're negative, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. You're in back, you won't even get a fridge for the office. And all these little things, which I guess there are lessons that I should have learned as well myself from team management as well. But I think that was a moment when, my, when at 12 people versus one, I think for me, that was like, once you lose that respect, you're not going to regain it as a main shareholder or whatever it is. So I thought, okay, I tried a little bit for a few weeks, but I just realized this is, is done now. Like you can't regain that respect. But it was also a great lesson for me because it taught me how to just be around people and manage people and not create this. Even saying things like, well done, I would never say that. I'd be like, oh, this is cool, but we need to aim for the next. Oh, this is cool. I'd never celebrate the moment. So it was a good lesson for me in terms of people management. But I think to answer your question, I think that moment made me realize, okay, I've lost all respect. It's impossible to gain. It's, it's time. It's time to bounce. And I think, yeah, it was a moment where I thought, okay, I've learned a lot here. I just need to digest it. When something like that happens, or well, one, did they get the board approval and everything before having this conversation? Or so it had been going on. So that's for... the thing. The investors knew about this. And I thought, oh, shit. The investors knew about this, that this was going to happen. So, you, so I was like, okay, not only did my team turn against me, but so did my investors and so did everyone else. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. But like I said, at the same time, it was a huge learning experience for me in terms of people management. But it was one of those things, you can't turn that situation around. So how did you recover? Did you go on a spa trip? Did you, I don't know, take up yoga for six months and go to some retreat? What was the digestion from this company you spent years building to now I got to do something else? There was no time off whatsoever. I think it was just more, I thought, okay, what I did is I had just a bit of time to like mentally switch off and to just meditate and just think and all that stuff. And I remember I was, went into a meeting room by myself and it was like a whiteboard and I just looked at the whiteboard. I thought, okay, my life has two paths. One path is I turn the situation around and I raise money and I grow this into like potentially a billion dollar company or whatever it is. And then we have this magical exit or I have this side hustle that's making, I don't know, I think it's making a thousand dollars a month at the time. And then we, I thought, okay, if I just go all in on this and see what I can turn it into, worst comes to worst, I'll make a six figure salary if I grow it. So, okay, let me just take this approach and let me go back to what is that I feel comfortable with as a founder. And I re that's the moment where I realized I cannot be a CEO. A CEO is someone that works crazy hours, that manages loads of people, blah, 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 and thrives off it. I guess the best example is like Gary Vee, for example, like he looks like he works a lot. You can just see on his face. And I thought that's not the type of person that I want to be. I want to be able to have everything running on autopilot and having a life, having my lifestyle come first and my like mental health, physical health, all that come first. And then business goes around it, not the other way around. And that's when I thought, okay, let me try this. It was a moment of a clarity just with a blank whiteboard. 
I'm curious with what you drew and wrote out on that white board, but I'm also curious. So then you decide, okay, this one business making a thousand a month, one for the audience out there, please tell us what that niche was, that business. And then what was the business model? What was your KPIs, your goals? What, how did you set anything on that whiteboard where you're like, okay, thousand dollars this month, by the end of this year, we're going to do 10,000 or so a couple questions there. Did you pressure yourself for any goals, KPIs for this new side hustle? Two, what did you put on the whiteboard? Did you draw out like a vision board or anything like that? No, do you know what's really interesting, actually? I've done this always through business in terms of the KPIs and all that stuff. I operate from a place of very few KPIs and just let, because that would reduce pressure. And it'd just be like, okay, let me approach this creatively. And for me, it was just, I think the minimum was like, okay, if I can make 60,000 pounds a month, I don't know, what's that, $80,000 or something, I thought, I could be okay with that. That was my like one target. And the rest was just like, you know what? Just take it easy. Just chill. You've just had a hard ride. Experiment, be creative and see where you get to. And that was it. And the whiteboard, it was just simple. It's okay. The first business raw mix, which was pretty much win my team back, which would be impossible once you lose respect raise money, scale to this many users, blah, 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 exit or whatever. So there was more details on that side. And then the side hustle side, I was like, okay, just me and just the whole blank space. And then just maybe, the words maybe, 60K. It wasn't even as high as that, maybe I'll get that. And the rest was just blank. Think about extreme, but okay, okay. So question there, you built that next company, the side hustle. It was on YouTube. First of all, I, I still don't think you've actually told our audience what that side hustle is. Were you worried about building it on a third-party platform that you ultimately have no control over? And tell us what it was for the audience. Well, was, okay, so the side hustle was music for helping people sleep and music for helping people to relax. And within the side hustle of the side hustle was relaxation music for dogs and cats, okay? She's crazy. So for me, it was just, yeah, obviously building revenue on YouTube or whatever can be a risk. But I thought at the end of the day, we own the rights to everything. Nothing we're doing is illegal. So we'll be fine. We own the copyrights to everything. All the paperwork is done. And then also we can just diversify. So put the money, release those albums on all the like Spotify, Apple Music and other areas, other income streams. And then the other one was interesting was like, let me see if I can do deals with hotels. And this goes back to like recruitment. I was literally just picking up the phone and be like, okay, can I speak to the VP of hotel management or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. Just literally just had a list, just going through them. I thought, oh, wow, my recruitment skills are paying off. And there's a few hotels that we had music license deals with and all that stuff. So yeah, that was it. I didn't date. You always built, most businesses are built on some sort of third party platform. Reality. And for me, I thought, okay, it's YouTube, there's a risk. Let's just see what happens. Not sure if you're okay with sharing, but what type of metrics were you guys getting on YouTube? Just the millions of downloads are it's pretty incredible. Just such a simple idea. Relaxation music for pets. Then you go to the website and you're like, gosh, how many millions of downloads did you have? 
It's crazy. Yeah. So obviously over the years, and I think it was more the CPMs, like our CPMs were super high. So we, I guess we were making more money per average view than a normal like YouTuber. But I think a lot of it was just because we were just experimenting and working with music producers and film producers and trying different ideas and just A-B testing all the way. I think, what was it, 2022 or maybe 2023? I think we had about 50 million cats and dogs consume our music or TV content around the world, which was insane. And I think they were consuming 14 million hours every 28 days, which I think is about 1,700 years, 1,700 years of content every 28 days was consumed by cats and dogs on our platforms or streaming or whatever it is. So with that, you had an exit, successful exit. What were the value drivers that you were pushing towards the investors? Were they interested in just the minutes? Were they interested in access to your audience? What got them really excited when having conversations? I think, and this is something that I realized, was I didn't realize that I had built a record label. It's weird, right? Or a music company or whatever it was. And because I built this in Manchester, we, I didn't know much about the music industry and how it all operates. And it was only until I started connecting with record labels in LA, they were like, Aman, you own 100% of your intellectual property, which means you own the masters, the publishing, every section of that whole music. And I, in Obviously being naive and having no knowledge, I just assumed that owning 100% was normal. But in the music industry, it's extremely rare. You have like songwriters, publishing, blah, blah, blah. You have so many layers, so many splits in music. No one owns 100% of the music. So I was just sure. So for them, they're like, oh, shit, this guy owns 100% of his catalog. It's rare. And we have a brand, Relax My Dog and Relax My Cat. So we had a brand and we owned 100% of our intellectual property. So for them, I think that's what kept that, had them like the most excited. So with these, or the new company, the side hustle, what were the lessons or key takeaways that you were getting out of this? So with the side hustle, I'd say it was more key lesson and takeaway. I'd say we're just having creative freedom and most importantly, just moving at a speed that I want to move at, which I didn't realize I like to get things done like super quick. And like it should have been the done guy that doesn't yesterday. like CPIs. Yeah, like they just have done super quick. No we pressure, just, just get it done. Yeah, get it done yesterday. That's my motto. And it, which is interesting because, yeah, I don't really have to like, if I have KPIs, it's like, it's, it might be like super like loose. But if I want something done, it's okay, let's get this done. And more importantly, what's the quickest way? Is there a shortcut? Is there a shortcut to getting it done? And I think for me, the lesson... It's a good one because the biggest lesson is like building this business as a solo of 100% founder, no investors, no co-founders, 100% equity, all the way to exit. I think the biggest lesson is learning how to deal with loneliness in a sense that you can't really bounce ideas off of anyone. You can't speak to anyone. No one, especially with the idea this crazy, like it's never been done before. And it's how, and it, I think the biggest lesson I learned is, okay, I can't speak to anyone. And even if I do speak to someone that's an expert, they're not really going to understand this. So a lot of it, I'd say 
the biggest lesson I learned was truly being in tune with my intuition and my gut and just start making a lot of decisions based on feeling, which is probably not in certain areas where you just, that, that's all you have and you have to learn how to do that. Okay, so you exited, transitioned. Now you're a brand ambassador. You're working at this big company. How does that transition work for someone that's been, as you mentioned, 100% decision maker for so many years now to, I have no idea if you have a boss or if you report to people or if they leave you alone. Like, how is that transition? How should our listeners that are about to exit their companies to a larger strategic or wherever, how should they mentally prepare for what's in store ahead for them? I'd say the first thing is it depends on the deal structure. Obviously, I can't go into the details of my deal structure, but I, all I can say is that it's everything that I wanted and more. As a result, I was like, I'm very happy. At some, time, at some points, I pinched myself. I'm like, this is actually a really good deal that I got. So I'd say it depends on the deal structure that they have, but it definitely is an adjustment because you are no longer the center of attention. You become a cog in a large corporation. And I think it's weird actually, because I went on a ski holiday at the start of this month and it was the first time I had, I submitted the holiday approval to my boss. <laughs> do you know what, do you know what's so interesting on the flip side of that? I thought, wow, this is the fir first time I get to take annual leave. Don't have to open my laptop. I can actually enjoy a holiday. So for me personally, I love it now. It's only been six months. Who knows? Maybe another six months I might go crazy. I don't know. They do get, this company gives me a lot of freedom. And I think when I need them, if not, there's a lot of like autonomy in that aspect. Do you think I got lucky because there are other people that have exited? They've had really bad earnout terms and all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. I would say whoever's about to exit, front load your deal as much as possible because your earnout, you're not going to hit and you're going to get screwed over. So front load your deal as much as possible. And it depends because there was another company that was interested in the acquisition, but they were like super corporate. When there's like a hundred words on a slide, and it's just this, like their slide deck is like super structured and all that. These were like ex-private equity kind of company. And I thought, okay, this is a corporate that's going to annoy the fuck out of me. I'm not going to fit in this structure. Whereas Crate Music Group that acquired me seems to be like pretty chilled, offers a lot of creative freedom. And yeah, so I'd say it was lucky to structure a deal that, that worked for me. And I think... It also depends on the company that's about to exit. If you're about to exit, it depends on the structure they have before exit as well. Like how much of their intellectual property of their own, how many investors, stakeholders, all that stuff. I'd say have your business. I was very lucky. My business was super clean. Like structurally, it was so clean that it was just literally you hand it on a plate and go, here you go. And the transition is easy. So did you easy. have to prepare or anything for that acquisition? Were you thinking, I'm going to sell this year, I'm going to get all these processes in order, so it's this clean handoff, or was it just a sudden, hey, we're interested in your company. You are? Oh, what's the offer? Okay, I'm interested in selling. Like, how was that? Were you thinking ready to exit, or did it just happen? So in the back of my mind, I always built my business in a way where I was like, someone looking from the outside in. 
So always, like, if someone was looking at the outside in, how do I make this clean? But I never had the in the back of my head to exit. However, in the UK, I don't know how it is in like the US, but once your EBITDA goes above a certain number, or goes over one million pounds EBITDA, that information is public on companies' house in the UK. And what happens is uh, a lot of M&A firms will approach you and be like, oh, we can sell your business, blah, blah. And obviously you get hit up so many times, you're like, okay, what can you do? And then a bunch of M&A firms would, they were looking in the wrong place. They, you know, I guess they were looking in the obvious place. We make music and TV for cats and dogs. Who best to sell to? Maybe someone like a Purina or a Mars or a pet, a pet food company or something like that or a pet retailer. And in the UK, it was chopped around, but none of these pet-related companies were interested, which was weird. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. And because a lot of them were like, oh, this is such a unique asset. We don't even know what to do with it. We don't even know what to do with it and all that stuff. So I told the M&A guys, you know, just forget it. It's not worth it. You said you could do this. Obviously nothing happened. Let me just go back and continue building my business. And then it was just through maybe a year later, through a random LinkedIn message about doing a licensing deal. And then from there, it turned into an acquisition conversation. And I think it was more the fact that it was more of a realization that, oh, I am a music company, not a pet related. I'm a music company that happens to entertain pets, but I'm a music company first. Before I was what was a pet company first. So that's when I found, oh, okay, this is where the buyers are, not over there. But that's an inbound approach. It was no M&A involved. So mom, what's on the horizon? What are you going to be working on in the future? What are you going to start another company? Most entrepreneurs seem to go six months and then start their next thing. Like, what should we look for you in 2024, 2025? Honestly, it's, it's the same thing. Like when I was building this business, I always plan three months ahead and no, nothing further. And right now for the next three months, there's a lot of things I want to do here within the business that acquired me. Do I want to start another company? I don't know. I don't, I'm not thinking that far ahead yet. This, I'm learning a lot about the music industry, being part of this company now. Let's just see how things go every month. That's it. Month by month. I'm not thinking any further ahead than that. But I tell you what, it is good to, after being a founder for so long, you do realize once you come out of it, selling your business, I think a lot of founders might realize is, is you look back and you will ask yourself, how the fuck did I not go crazy? Honestly, like I look back and like, how the hell did I survive that? If you don't realize how much you normalize the ups and downs. And you normalize it so much that once you come out of it, like, oh my God, what the hell was that? And, it's, and you asked me a question, do I want to start another company? Do I want to even go back into that again? Let me just chill for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think month by month, let's see what happens. Fantastic. And Amon, if anyone of our listeners wants to find out what you're working on, wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way to go about doing that? And if you have one piece of advice for the audience out there, Now's the time to give it. So firstly, to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram, which I'm sure will be in the show notes. And the one piece of advice I would say, which I got very lucky on, I don't know how it works with tax in America, but I would say if you're preparing to sell your business, make sure you're, all your taxes are like 
sorted out or structured or your company structures are all done two years before you exit. Make sure everything's like super clean. Because honestly, that even though my business was clean, the exit process still was a lot of drama. But I did have an M&A guy represent me after to help go through the process. And he goes, and I thought it was hard, but he said, Aman, trust me, this is easy. This is so much easier than the mess I normally see on acquisitions. So I would say just lean up as much as possible so you don't have that pain further down the line. All right. And for our audience out there, if you're looking for someone to help you go through one of these processes, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. And please visit the website, The Silicon Valley Podcast, where you can hear our past episodes and know what we're working on in the future. And with that, Aman, this is a fantastic episode. So I really want to thank you for being a guest on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.